You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Stephen King's Carrie. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and today with me I have regular panelist Marie Hawes and Nathan Gilmore, who's joining us from the network's flagship show, The Christian Humanist Podcast. Hey, Marie and Nathan. Howdy. Hey. Before we say a little bit more about what we're doing on today's show, let's introduce ourselves. Marie, get us started. So, hi, I'm a regular panelist. Um, I've been a graduate student for a bazillion years, first in literature and then in theology, but I actually graduated from what will be my final graduate degree um, last semester from Yale Divinity School with an MDiv and a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. I live in Connecticut currently with my husband and my seven-month-old, um, and in relation to this episode, uh, I've studied and taught on 18th and 19th century Gothic novels and how the grotesque shows up there in relation to gender. So that's something that I had in mind while encountering Carrie in preparation for this show. Thanks, Marie. Uh, and if I haven't told you this yet, congratulations on graduating. That's really exciting. Thanks. Uh, Nathan, since you're our guest, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and then I will... Uh, wrap up. Certainly. Uh, I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Uh, I live here uh, just west of Athens, Georgia, with my wife Mary, my son Micah, and my daughter Miriam. Uh, Micah is 14, and boy, are the teenagers everything that people told me they would be. Uh, and my daughter is 10, and boy, are the teenagers everything they t- told me they would be. <laughs> Seems like uh, some of that might be pertinent to today's episode as well. Oh my. Uh, Thanks, Nathan. We're really happy to have you here. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I live with my husband, Michael Farmer, also of the Christian Humanist Podcast in Woodstock, Georgia. Uh, I got my PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. Uh, I am currently unemployed and job searching. So uh, that is the Sisyphean task of my life at the moment. Uh, And happy to be here talking about uh, a novel that I used to like when I was an adolescent and like a lot less now. Uh, So maybe we'll maybe we'll get into reasons behind that. Um, But first, uh, as I said, Nathan is a guest with us today. 
For listeners who aren't familiar, every Halloween our network stages a crossover event that allows us to guest on each other's shows so we can switch up the voices listeners might normally hear on any given show with some new ones, uh, and we all have conversations on a shared theme. So this year's theme is Stephen King novels, and since we're going to be the first episode in the crossover to drop, we wanted to tell everyone a little bit more about the other things the crossover is covering. Nathan, can you tell us more about that? Certainly. Uh, So first of all, the network crossover started in uh, 2015 uh, when we were all on, uh, I think, Facebook, one of the social media networks. Uh, And I discovered that uh, Victoria and Michael were uh, watching Firefly and Michael was watching Firefly for the first time. Uh, And, you know, kind of as a joke, I said, you know, we should totally do like this Christian Humanist Network crossover and just talk about Firefly because that would be awesome. Um, and then not long after I discovered that I hadn't made a joke, but I'd actually proposed something for the network, uh, because we were all signing up to be on each other's shows. And that was December, 2015. And it was great. Um, but, uh, in following years, we decided to move the crossover over to, uh, Halloween time. So one year we did the, uh, Universal Studios monster movies. One year we did the Twilight Zone uh, one year, I'm trying to think, we did Alfred Hitchcock films, uh, and this year we are doing Stephen King novels, so uh, this will be the first that you're listening to if you have the good taste and sound morals to be subscribed to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, you'll also hear, if you continue listening and if you subscribe to the other network shows, The City of Man, uh, talking about revival the Christian Humanist Podcast, talking about misery, the Book of Nature, talking about The Shining, and Sectarian Review, talking about Pet Cemetery. So that is the crossover this year, Victory, Victoria. Victory? Wow. Victoria. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Um, as Nathan said, this is going to be the first episode in the crossover to drop. That is fairly fortuitous, because Carrie is actually King's first published novel. Um, Not first written, but first published. He's an incredibly prolific author, as of this recording, um, though it may change, he writes so quickly. He's published 61 novels, 6 books of nonfiction, and somewhere upwards of 200 short stories. Lots of his work has been adapted into popular films, uh, examples also appearing in our crossover include The Shining and Pet Cemetery. Some other examples of films you might have seen and might not know that they're king include Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Carrie was originally released as a film in 1976. Some of you may have seen that as well, um, as I did when I was growing up. Sissy Spacek plays the title title role and earns herself an Oscar nomination improbably. (laughs) Uh, I don't think we get a lot of Oscar nods for horror movies these days. Uh, Maybe the Jordan Peele corpus accepted. Uh, And notably, John Travolta plays Billy, the kind of uh, evil high school boy. A little bit more background about the novel itself... Uh, It comes out in April of 1974, and King says he's inspired to write it because he receives a letter from a female fan familiar with some of his short stories, and she says, hey, you don't write a lot about women, maybe you should do that more. 
Um, I, I have a bone to pick with her if Carrie is what resulted from that. Uh, but maybe we can uh, get into that more uh, later in our discussion. He talks about writing Carrie in one of his nonfiction books, uh, Danse Macabre, in the early 80s. He says that it's a feminist allegory about, quote, women discovering unknown power and uh, calls it a metaphor for the second wave. Like much of his work, it's set in a small town in Maine. King himself grew up in Portland and writes lots of stuff set in Maine. There are also some recurring themes in it that show up in other places in his work. Uh, people who are outcasts, supernatural phenomena, and uh, small towns hiding dark secrets. But before we jump into the book itself, um, I want to talk a little bit about our experiences with Carrie, the novel, uh, or the film, and King's work in general. Have you guys um, read the novel before this or seen either the 1976 film or the 2013 remake? Uh, and do you have other experiences with King's novels outside of Carrie? Marie, what's your uh, experience of his work? Well, to be honest, I had not experienced really pretty much anything of Stephen King's before I watched The Shining once, I guess. <laughs> that's that's um, pretty much about it. Um, so I hadn't read or watched Carrie before preparing for this episode. Um, I enjoyed this introduction to his work. I did also watch the 1976 and 2013 films in preparation, but no prior experience. What did you think um, of the movies, if you had never seen them before? Um, the 1976, I, I mean, it had the tone of a classic movie um, and all the great filmography and all that sort of thing. It was a little bit boring, though, um, to me. <laughs> and the 2013, the main thing that struck me was it introduces this interesting theme of self-harm um, with Margaret White, like harming herself, uh, physically cutting herself when she thinks she's sinning and... Uh, Carrie starts to do the same thing and Sue Snell's sacrificial giving up the prom seems to be going into like this is a, this is not a positive kind of self-harm and self-abnegation that all of these women are falling into so that was sort of the interesting thing that was introduced in that one for me. I think another big part that's in both adaptations uh, is they both end with this fall of the house of Usher, collapse, physical collapsing of Carrie's house um, which isn't uh, in the novel um, as the conclusion. Oh, that's interesting. I'd forgotten about the house stuff, and I I kind of want to see the remake now. What you're saying about self-harm is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it's very Susan Bordeaux in terms of um, trauma, mm, yeah. you know, uh, social trauma manifests physically. That's, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, though my the reason that I haven't watched the remake is because uh, listeners, if you don't know, it stars um, Chloe Grace Moretz, and I I could never get into the idea that like we're supposed to think that she this objectively beautiful like small blonde person is ugly and awkward. Um, that's a that's like a mental block for me about that movie. Mm, yeah, all of all of the carries have been pretty good looking. <laughs> no. Well, Sissy Spacek is at least not conventionally beautiful. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, thanks, Marie. Nathan, what about your uh, Carrie and or Stephen King experiences? 
Well, we uh, had a brief conversation before we started recording, and I discovered that I had uh, seen more Stephen King than I thought I had, just because uh, apparently he's written everything. Uh, but uh, this is my first encounter with Carrie. I, I never saw either of the films, and I'll, I'll just confess that I, this semester has been going full speed, so I didn't have time to take them in for the recording today. That's that's totally fine. We... Uh, that was not assigned to you. You were not required to watch movies for this. Uh, so, so no big deal. Um, I think that I have read more King than both of you, though I have not read a lot. Um, I went through a bit of a phase in junior high and high school where I was um, reading his stuff, partly because it was kind of, not exactly forbidden, but it was a little um, dark and risky and different. Uh, and I was, you know, in that teenage rebellious phase that we're going to talk more about later in the episode. Um, I saw this movie for the first time when I was around 12. Um, I came home complaining about the horrible kids in my junior high school and my mom, um, I'm not sure exactly what her motivation was. Um, I don't know if she wanted to like tell me that hoping for revenge is bad. Uh, and leads everyone to uh, disastrous consequences, or if she, or if she just like wanted me to feel catharsis uh, through Carrie's powers, I don't know what her motivation was. But uh, she sat me down and showed me the the movie, and I was um, terrified of it. But I was terrified primarily of um, the opening scene and 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 the character of. Um, Carrie's mother. I, I know that the, the Piper Laurie performance as Margaret White gave me nightmares uh, subsequently, and that's what I remember the most. Uh, I read the novel in high school, but I don't remember anything about it. Uh, I certainly don't remember the terrible sex scenes, which maybe we'll discuss, and I certainly should not have been reading those at 14. Um, other King that I have read, I read Christine and Cujo. Um, I read the collection of short stories that uh, became the really bad Johnny Depp movie Secret Window. And, uh, and oh, I read the short story The Body, which might be his most well-known. Um, it gets adapted into the very lovely 80s coming-of-age movie uh, Stand By Me. So I, I do have some experience. Um, I've never been a really big fan. I think that King is better at uh, sort of plots than he is at character and motivation. I, I don't find most of his characters to be round or uh, or nuanced. Amen to that. <laughs> okay, good. I'm I'm glad you glad you agree. Uh, but I, I think uh, the best jumping-off point into the discussion of the novel um, is to talk a little bit about how it starts, which is this really terrible inciting incident. Uh, the first part of the novel is called uh, First Blood, and the conflict kicks off when Carrie White, who is 16 at the time, gets her first period in the showers after gym class. Um, it's really harrowing, and her menstruation starts to become a metaphor for her developing uh, powers, which we find out uh, later in the novel are telekinesis. 
So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about kind of the idea of menstruation in the American consciousness, um, what our experiences or knowledge of it was like growing up, um, and, and how this opening scene in the novel um, might reflect the knowledge or lack of knowledge that we may have. Um, obviously, Nathan, you don't have direct experience, so uh, Marie and I will talk about um, what our experience was like going forward, um, and then maybe you can give us a bit of a parental perspective since you have, as you said, a teenage son and a preteen daughter. How's that sound? Sounds like it'll work. All right. Um, Marie, you want to get us started? How old were you, and what did you know going into the experience? Sure. So um, I think, I'm pretty sure I was 11, and as far as I can remember, I don't remember telling anybody uh, when I started to menstruate. I felt like it was this private thing. But I also remember feeling like kind of proud, thinking like, oh, well, I'm a woman now, able to get pregnant. Isn't that, you know, something? And I read, I just read so much growing up. I'd read so much by then that I wasn't really surprised or worried. I knew what was going on. I just sort of took some of my mom's pads and then started buying my own at the marketplace because we were living then in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, and we always bought things from this uh, market near our house. I felt a little embarrassed when I had to be asked to handed the package to be handed the packages of pads to buy them, um, and I felt sort of embarrassed when my stained underwear started showing up in the laundry. But uh, yeah, that, it wasn't like a super traumatic experience for me. Um, and looking back now, I feel like I, I should have told my mother. I'm sure she would have wanted me to. Um, and why did I feel like I should just stay quiet about that? And that's something I regret now. Yeah, I mean, I think that shame um, is definitely something that shows up in the novel and is something that shows up in a lot of people's personal experiences. Uh, I was... 14, I think, um, I believe it was, uh, eighth grade. And I, uh, like Carrie, uh, made the discovery after gym class, though it was not as terrible <laughs> as her experience. Well, Thank goodness. Um, yeah, that is good. <laughs> um, so I, I was in the locker room and, um, I'd been feel like my stomach had been feeling kind of funny all morning, but I just thought it was, I don't know, normal uh maybe I'd eaten something weird for breakfast uh and I remember looking down and seeing blood and thinking oh okay I I guess this is happening now and I I knew what was going on because like Marie you said I had read a lot um I had read uh Judy Bloom's period classic are you there god it's me Margaret many 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 times yeah I'd read that too <laughs> um and listeners if if you're looking for um, a text about your first period that is also kind to religious people. Um, unlike this novel, uh, I, I would recommend uh, that book to you and the young girls in your life. Though, one thing that was confusing about that, which I think I mentioned this on a previous episode we did about YA fiction, um, I got the older copy in the library where Margaret learns to use a sanitary belt. And I remember going home to my mother and being like, 
belt? Like, what is this contraption? And I've never seen one. And am I going to have to wear that? And what is going on? Um, Though subsequent and current editions of the book uh, talk about tampons. So that'll be less confusing for uh, Gen Z girls than it was for me, which is good. Uh, The other thing I remember about that experience is, so I, I guess I didn't tell anybody at school think I put some toilet paper in my underwear, um, a thing I know other women have done uh, that I've that I've talked to about this. And then I went home, and my older sister had moved out by that point, so there like wasn't, as far as I knew, anything in the house. So I went to my stepbrother and was like, "Hey, I need you to take me to the store. Um, I got my period for the first time. Can we?" go get stuff and his response was like ew gross no I don't want to deal with that uh talk to our parents when they come home so I got kind of angry at him but not that angry because I I think I like sort of expected him to be grossed out by it um which is another thing to unpack I suppose and uh I told my parents when they got home and my stepmother had a really great conversation with me she I will remember this forever um she got me pads and stuff but she also brought me uh a milk chocolate rose and uh we had this kind of lovely conversation about um that my body was maturing and that I was a woman now and I remember her telling me you know don't let anybody ever convince you to do things you don't want to do and your body belongs to you and those kinds of things. Uh, I think I was super embarrassed by it at the time, but I'm really glad that that happened looking back as an adult. That sounds like such a healthy conversation. Yeah. Yeah. She was really great about that stuff. Um, And though I probably wasn't grateful enough uh, for it at the time, I'm super grateful to have had that now. So, Nathan, um, as I said, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on these issues. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, like, did you learn anything about the menstrual process growing up? And do you have an idea what your children, um, who are getting closer to that age, uh, are learning now? Yeah, so first of all, uh, I've, I've kind of discovered over the last few years, uh, you know, one of my slogans about epistemology is that most of the world happens when I'm not in the room. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been discovering over the last few years that, you know, the purity culture, which the Christian Feminist Podcast has discussed and engaged in very interesting and helpful ways, really didn't get into full swing until after I was out of high school and into college. So yeah, a lot I think of that's the, probably true. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the uh, real horror stories, not like Stephen King horror stories, but horror stories about the purity culture uh, happened when I was already, first of all, out of high school youth group, and second of all, old enough to, and educated enough, frankly, to engage with them critically. So, I mean, my first, you know, uh, knowledge, my first encounters were, frankly, in public school, junior high health classes. Uh, It was very clinical. They told us, you know, what body parts were involved, what the basic timing was, things like that. Uh, So, I mean, for me, uh, you know, honestly, I mean, it it never occurred to me to be horrified by it. I had also never read any Stephen King novels, so I (laughs) 
<laughs> that's probably a factor in that as well. I didn't think that they would give anyone superpowers. Um, you know, I as, they as, did though. I, uh, man, oh man, I, I'm telling you, I, 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 I was aware this novel existed, but I really wasn't aware of this novel till I read it. Um, now, I mean, you know, in uh, my own kids' lives, you know, when Micah was, I'm, I'm wanting to say, you know, 10, 11 years old, you know, uh, I had conversations with him largely, you know, driving back and forth to the Little League field. Again, I mean, I, I tried to keep it, you know, pretty clinical uh, on the biological level, but then I just told him, you know, I mean, you're going to have friends in school uh, who are going to have, you know, different expectations about sex, but I mean, you know, we are uh, Christians. And I mean, you know, if you do want to follow Jesus on this and we, you know, talked about, you know, the new Testament's expectations for monogamy and for, you know, things like that. Uh, and I said, I basically told him, you know, uh, and again, I, I realize this is not, you know, a unanimous position among Christians, uh, especially over the last year and a half or so, it's become more of a dispute, but I said, you know, uh, you have, electronic devices uh i never want you to get on pornographic sites because you know and we talked about the mainly the project production of them the exploitation of the people who are in pornography and i said you know i mean you are driving that industry along if you click on that so never do that uh, now with my daughter you know i mean mainly it's been mary talking to her uh but i mean i have you know had parts of those conversations with her. I mean, she's aware that, you know, her body is going to change. She's not really going to have, you know, a, a countdown to let her know when it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. Uh, you know, so when, and this was interesting, the, this last uh, annual checkup she had, you know, the, the physician's assistant asked her if she started her cycle and she kind of looked over at me puzzled. Uh, and I said, she means period. And Miriam said, Oh no, then. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So, interesting yeah yeah um so i mean you know like i said i i i, I know that uh you know the homeschooling movement and the period culture movement really kind of gained acceleration after i was already in college and past you know the years where a lot of people were heavily influenced by that uh but i mean for that reason i mean you know like i said my my own knowledge of it was was fairly clinical uh, fairly free of the, you know, I, I don't even know what to call it, but I, I mean, really horror is the best word for what I see in this novel and what I've heard about, you know, some of the worst of purity culture. Uh, is there anything else that, I mean, I, the, those are the, the main points that come to my mind. No, that, that sounds great and encouraging. It sounds like, um, lots of people, you and other parents are working to counteract some of the shame-based purity culture uh, messages that Marie and I seem to have internalized a little bit um, and, and have reflected on in our past experiences. So that's, that's encouraging. Oh, and, and listeners, I mean, just in case, uh, you know, I'm 42 years old, so I mean, I'm, I'm a good decade older than Victoria, so I really did sail past the purity culture wave or i guess i i sailed past and then the purity culture wave crashed that's a bad metaphor anyway <laughs> that's okay we're gonna use some inappropriate metaphors probably um 
Marie, can you take us into the novel's uh, opening scene a little bit more? Talk about um, sort of how menstruation is working uh, in the novel and what it has to say about the embodied feminine. Sure. Um, though I want to say first, I don't want to blame my mom for me keeping quiet because I remember at one point her trying to give me the talk and I was just like, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, no. <laughs> I know all that already. Um, but uh, that aside, okay, so menstruation and Carrie, there's three things that I want to talk about a little bit. Um, one is how menstruation relates to the female grotesque here, and then a little bit about how blood is so negative here and how this works with some Christ illusions um, that I see going on. So one thing that struck me about Carrie right off the bat is how much it's drawing on this uh, images of the female grotesque. That is, there's the focus on bodily excess that's tied to the female coded body. Um, so in her study, The Female Grotesque, uh, comparative literature scholar Mary Russo identifies two strands of the grotesque, and one, a Bakhtinian strand, the carnivalesque grotesque body's excesses show the body as intensely communal and alive, connected to the world, everything in flux, with laughter as regenerative and death sliding into rebirth, and another different strand, the grotesque is more demonic, uncanny, projecting this deviant inner state that's monstrous and criminal. And this kind of grotesque as inhuman emphasizes the strangeness of the normal world. So for Rousseau, these types of the grotesque aren't necessarily opposites. With both, you can only tell what's grotesque by first having an idea of what is normal. So both illuminate that constructed norm, and with both, deviation from that norm is dangerous. The spectacle of the female grotesque, or the female as grotesque, uh, can then work to deconstruct gender to show femininity being constructed as excess and deviation that's both seen as and punished as dangerous. So Carrie, I think, would be more related to the uncanny grotesque than the carnivalesque. Carrie is definitely this figure of female excess who's both punished and dangerous. Um, you get an a female excess most obviously, of course, in the menstruation element that we've been talking about. So we have the public shaming of Carrie when she first menstruates in that inciting incident in uh, the shower. And then we have the climactic I don't think image. we've actually discussed what happens. Can we can we go deeper into that? How how is oh, she yeah. how is she shamed and what do the other girls do to her? Sure. So in that incident, we have Carrie first discovering uh, that she's bleeding. She doesn't know what's going on. Um, the girls notice her bleeding in the shower, the, the other girls in her gym class, um, and they start mocking her for that. Meanwhile, she, not knowing what's going on, is just scared and uh, ashamed. Um, they start pelting her uh, with tampons and pads, um, and shouting, plug it up, uh, in this just sort of circle of mockery um, while she cowers there. Um, so it's really uh, taking <laughs> shaming to having to do with menstruation to this really extreme height in that scene. It's really terrible. I felt, I remember being more mortified by it as a teenager, but even reading the novel, you know, last week, I'm 33 years old, and I could feel myself getting like, proxy embarrassment i like yeah. f got flushed and scared just reading it i guess that stuff stays with you yeah pretty horrible <laughs> um 
yeah, and then and the, the the climax as well with with Carrie on stage covered in pig's blood, which is the prank, the high school prank that sets off her telekinetic powers and her destruction at prom night, um, which is like one of the main things that people would probably remember about this story. Uh, when she's covered in pig's blood there, that's of course a reference to menstruation as well and to being shamed for that. Um, so with menstruation here, you have the, the inner becoming the outer in this porous female body that's used as an image of horror. You have the normal functioning of the female-coded body becoming a kind of body horror uh, where we have bodily aberration and violation of a body as a means of evoking disgust and terror in the audience. Um, I should point out, too, that Carrie's body is portrayed as excessive in the novel in other ways all along as well, um, with the physical descriptions, or at least her own narration, uh, or, well, her own sort of stream of consciousness showing her as, like, disgusting because fat from her, her perspective and her peers, and that's tied to her shaming, too. Uh, so Carrie's initial menstruation marks her for ostracism and rejection by other women at the start of the action. As they're in that sort of circle of mockery, they're funneling their own discomfort, fear, and horror about their own bodies being seen as excessive or themselves seeing their, their bodies as excessive onto Carrie in this scapegoating ritual. Um, and this female bodily excess of menstruation is then tied to, of course, as you said, the central uncanny element of the novel Carrie's telekinetic power and that havoc that she wreaks with it when she comes when she comes into that power after the uh, pig's blood shaming so the emergence of her power and her danger is then explicitly connected with her beginning to menstruate um, so thinking of this as an instance of the female grotesque you could say like uh, Stephen King would seem to be arguing that there's a kind of power to this uh, coming of age carries strengths and abilities her female coded power can't be contained in some way it's a story of liberation as the underdog breaks free and shows herself to be more powerful than any of her tormentors with this cathartic revenge fantasy for every high school outcast um, but in another way, if we think about Carrie in relation to the female grotesque, it's uh, also just marking how the female body is constructed as deviant and dangerous from the get-go. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody yeah. does, including yeah. Carrie. So, yeah, she expresses that power, but yep. then, like, it's not the whole town is destroyed. No. No. <laughs> um, so that, that telekinetic destruction... Uh, is like her menstruation, her initial menstruation, actually, and that it's mysteriously turning this invisible, deviant inner state into a grotesque and criminal outer spectacle. Um, and that telekinesis is an uncanny element emphasizing, of course, the strangeness of the normal world, uh, making menstruation strange, uh, femininity strange, the female body strange. Um, on another level, for us sort of analyzing it as readers, we might see the strangeness of the normal world and its scapegoating rejection of the female-coded body that's taken to this such extremes in the novel's uh, initial menstruation scene and the pig's blood spectacle uh, so as us reading this we could say wait a minute it's strange that it's normal for the female coded body to be constructed as deviant um so i have like i said two other quick related points how blood is so negative here and how carrie works in relation to like allusions to christ um so part of how i see the grotesque going on here seeming 
more uncanny than carnivalesque is that blood is definitely not this regenerative, connective, or life-giving thing in any way here. It's all about ostracism, spectacles of isolation and suffering, shame, loss. Um, so the novel's action is sandwiched between two, instance, two instances of menstruation, they're both negative. We have Carrie's scapegoating shower scene. And at the other end, we have Sue's menstruation, just after Carrie dies, when Sue, uh, the novel says, gives one howling, cheated scream. So part of what she's cheated of is that the blood reveals that she's not going to have her dead boyfriend Tommy's baby. So this uh, second scene of menstruation is the opposite of the first in some ways. Sue is alone and in the dark, not this too illuminated spectacle to be humiliated by that circle of... Uh, laughing onlookers at the beginning. Um, and she'd been waiting for this period, or hope, sort of a mixture of hoping and fearing, um, and so it's not a complete shock. But it's still symbolic of loss, isolation, all that she's suffered in being one of the few survivors of this prom carnage, um, and perhaps uh, her dark menstrual blood, in the words of the novel, as she stands alone in the misty darkness, uh, symbolizes the loss of her childish innocence and her own coming-of-age journey. But anyway, the blood here is not about community or connection, and despite this psychic connection between Carrie and Sue, there isn't really any nurturing female community here for blood to mark connection to. No, blood is all, all the adults in this novel are completely incompetent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's more, uh, rather than like, yeah, joining some sort of nurturing community of women, it's about this division between women, like Carrie and the other girls, and Carrie and her mother, definitely, uh, not about community. Um, and then the last point, uh, blood isn't redemptive, obviously, either. So as the symbol of isolation and the tool for shaming, um, that's sort of, how I see Carrie working like in reverse of a, a Christ figure almost. Because she's explicitly described as a scapegoat in her introduction, which you, you'd see linking her with Christ from the start. Um, the shower scene, sort of like the mocking and scourging of Christ, the spectacle of Carrie elevated before a crowd covered in blood as the height of her rejection and torment at the hands of others. It's kind of like a crucifixion moment. Um, but rather than this blood, redeeming others it of course sparks carrie's supernatural wrath and leads to destruction and um you know after her fiery explosion of power she fades into this dark tunnel of death and uh, there's no like ascent from death to glory or anything like that um and one of his non-fiction pieces on writing king mentions this life-size crucifix with this agonized christ on it in the house of an outcast high school classmate who was a little bit of his inspiration for uh, carrie and he says, I didn't think you could ever be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on your behalf. The pain had driven him out of his mind. You could see it on his face. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving mood. So Carrie and her vengeance is kind of like this tortured Christ without the saving mood. Um, and also, when, when Margaret White describes her miscarriage during her final confrontation with Carrie, she says... Uh, that she had felt the sin of sex was expiated by blood, the blood that resulted from the loss of the baby. And I think the reader's supposed to feel, you know, like a revulsion at the idea that Margaret's linking this blood with expiation and with sexual shame, too, of course. And um, 
this kind of this is a disgusted rejection that arguably the reader might be supposed to extend to the idea of the crucifixion and its blood and suffering functioning in an expiating or salvific way either. Um, part of what we're probably about to talk about with the way that Margaret's faith is being painted as horrific itself in the novel. Um, though on a side note, there's of course a lot of theologians who would question making Christ's suffering or the crucifixion more broadly even a primary locus of atonement, but that's maybe something for another episode. Um, so the blood spilled on Carrie at the prom, the prom, and Carrie's own blood when she's stabbed by her mother. Obviously don't expiate anything, it's just horror, tragedy all the way, um, and maybe uh, we're supposed to see Margaret's uh, view of Christ's blood as expiatory also uh, in, in a similar way. Um, so perhaps this would be some, a, a good transition for going on to talking more about Margaret and fundamentalism and sexuality. But uh, first, is there anything you guys wanted to add about um, menstruation and Carrie? I've, I've got a couple notes, Victoria. I mean, one of them is, uh, and I mean, I'm going to ask you to, because of my, my knowledge of, of 20th century medical history is, well, I'm discovering practically non-existent. But there's a couple scenes in here. One of them is in the locker room scene where uh, Rita Desjardins basically slaps Carrie when she's having this emotional breakdown. And that we should uh, say that's the gym teacher, Carrie's gym teacher. Oh, yeah, I should have said that. Her. I should have said that, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's really no comment on that afterwards. I mean, in 1974, would this have been kind of standard operating procedure for people having emotional breakdowns? Because it happens somewhere else in that novel too, but I forget there, where. There are three or four times um, one of the police officers does it to Sue um, and calls her hyster right. hysterical too. So yeah, that seemed very strange to me and very out of time. Um, yeah, from, from a from another period. Um, that's another. Right, cause I mean, the, yeah, because the film Airplane, which is from the same basic moment, right? I mean, uses that as a completely tasteless gag, but frankly, if you expect good taste from Airplane, you're really misguided. Uh, but I mean, again, in that same historical moment, you can use it as a gag because everyone knows this is not that what you ridiculous. do when someone's having a, a breakdown. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, that that seems very retrograde, um, and I'm not sure it's supposed to. I, I just think um, King is kind of bad at writing women, from my experience, uh, I really would like to know what the woman who wrote the letter that inspired this novel thought about the novel. I tried to see if I could find that information anywhere, and I couldn't. Um, I, I was certainly disappointed with its its female portrayal. It's, it seemed very, very flat to me. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. The other point uh, is that, you know, one more blood scene that I, I found horrifying was when uh, Billy and his greaser gangsters, uh, you know, snuck onto the pig farm uh, to actually acquire yeah. the blood. I mean, you know, that it, it's a definite rape image there. I mean, they lure the pigs in with what the pigs desire, it's and terrible. then they inflict violence on their heads, and then they take the blood from them. I mean, so I, you know, there's. I, I think you're absolutely right, Marie, that there is no association here between blood and salvation. But there's definitely an yeah. association between blood and sexuality. Yes, <laughs> and, and female suffering, too. Another thing that I noted about when they go to the farm and slaughter the pigs, the farmer is not present on the farm because he's away for his mother's funeral. 
So, yep, yep. Su- su- suffer- <laughs> suffering women, um, absent or inappropriate mothers, blood, it's all, it's all there in spades. Um, yeah. So I, I think we've, uh, we're going pretty long. Um, so I think it's probably a good time to transition into um, the character of Margaret White, Carrie's mother. Um, in, in addition to being not great at women, uh, Stephen King has a habit of um, making his villains religious to uh, connote their badness. Uh, you see it in Misery with Annie Wilkes. Um, I believe, sorry if this is wrong, but I'm pretty sure one of the bad wardens in uh, in the Green Mile is also hyper-religious. Uh, but Margaret White definitely is. She's described over and over in the novel as a religious fundamentalist, um, though she doesn't act like any follower of the text, The Fundamentals, I have ever personally known. Um, There are lots of images of Jesus in their home. Um, Marie talked about the giant crucifix. She does take the Bible wherever she goes. Um, But I would call her a Gnostic more than anything else because she seems to adhere to this really strong vision of uh, body bad, spirit good. Um, She expresses a view of sexuality that she equates all sexual expression, even and sometimes especially sex within marriage, as demonic or satanic. Um, She tells Carrie that her conception occurred in a moment of weakness and that she tried to get her husband to um, exist in a chaste marriage with her because of um, purity. She also connects um, femininity in general, both Carrie's and her own and that of other women around her, as um, generally evil, though she does this um, for a a slightly emotionally justifiable reason because as we learn in the novel – um, the what they call the TK gene, the thing that enables telekinesis, is passed down through the female line exclusively and does skip generations. So Margaret's mother has it, it skips Margaret, and, uh, and Carrie doesn't. Uh, so I want to talk about two important scenes in the novel that, um, that kind of show us Margaret's character. Um, I'm going to allude to a third, which we might uh, come back to. So the first um, important scene in terms of Carrie's power and Margaret's religion is uh, told to us in flashback. Uh, People keep referring to the incident with the stones when Carrie was three. And uh, what happens is Stella, their neighbor, is um, who Margaret White thinks of as inappropriately sexual, though she just seems to be a normally developing teenage girl. Um, she doesn't seem to comport herself in any particularly inappropriate way to, um, you know, normal conceptions of appropriateness. She's sunbathing next door. Um, she falls asleep, and when she wakes up, the strap of her bathing suit has fallen down. Um, one of her breasts is exposed, and toddler Carrie is standing over her and sort of goggling, um, because that's not something you see every day as a toddler. Margaret comes over and is really terrible and yelling at her. Um, I want to read a an excerpt. Uh, so Carrie points down and says, 
what are those? I looked down and saw that my top had slipped while I was asleep. Those are breasts, Carrie. Then she said very solemnly, I wish I had some. I said, you have to wait. You won't get them for another eight or nine years. Then Carrie says, no, I won't. Mama says good girls don't. So this idea that any sexual development doesn't happen to you if you're a good girl, uh, that's pretty flawed. And not something that I've ever heard any actual uh, real-life religious person say. And when Margaret comes out of the house, uh, let's see, uh, she opened her mouth and whooped, the ugliest sound I've ever heard in my life. It was like the noise a bull alligator would make in a swamp. She just whooped. Rage, complete insane rage. So this is not she's not a person, right? She, she doesn't act the way human beings would act. Her motivations don't seem to be uh, human. Uh, there's, there's piety, and then there's just complete, uh, complete caricature. And uh, you're absolutely right, Victoria. And I would add to that, that if King thinks this is a feminist novel, I mean, <laughs> Margaret White is the emblem of female excess. When she gets mm-hmm. emotional, she literally becomes bestial. Yeah. She's the, like, old crone image of the grotesque, yeah. So you're right, Marie, there's a lot of witch imagery there, and that's, that's important to note. The second excerpt I wanted to mention is right before the prom, when Carrie makes the dress. Um, we haven't talked about this yet, but there's a lot of color symbolism um, in the novel that reflects back on the inciting menstruation uh, incident. Uh, though we haven't mentioned it yet, I think it's important to say that it's significant uh, that Margaret and Carrie are the whites. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know of a woman alive who hasn't heard or told some sort of period-related horror story where someone wearing white pants gets their period and everybody sees it. Um, you know, white as purity, white as the blood shows up more. So I I think it's significant that when it's time for Carrie to make her prom dress, she picks a red dress. Um, We get all these descriptions of uh, how pale her skin looks next to the red fabric. Um, Oh, and interestingly, in all the adaptations, the dress is a pale pink. Yeah, it's it's pink and not red. That's true. Just sort of toning that down. Uh, Yeah, that's that's important to note. Um, as well. And I, I think the red works much better metaphorically, though yeah. pink is probably supposed to be about, you know, the bloom of youth and femininity and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I think it's part of trying to make her more sympathetic or something like that, maybe. Yeah, that's that's probably um, a, a fair point, I think. Uh, so when Carrie makes the dress, she's proud of herself. She's independent. Uh, when she puts it on, she, quote, feels her back straightened up. Um, so this is a very normal uh, sort of teen differentiation uh, from one's parents that everyone goes through. Mrs. White, of course, reacts terribly. Um, she calls her both a Jezebel and a daughter of Eve uh, in that scene. So, you know, we get... Uh, sort of female temptress, uh, bad Bible reading there. And, uh, when she gets to the prom, everybody loves the dress. Tommy tells her that she looks beautiful and all the other girls, um, can't believe that she made it herself. And she gets this 
kind of wonderful fantasy moment of uh, normalcy before everything goes to uh, metaphorical and then kind of literal uh, hell because everything burns down. Um, I do eventually want to talk about uh, the uh, the bonding that happens with perhaps the only other almost rounded female character in the novel, Sue, um, but Nathan's going to tell us more about the other teenagers, so I'll wait on that. Um, the third thing I want to mention, though I'm not going to quote from it, is I think it's significant that uh, Carrie and her mother at the end of the novel both try to kill each other in this kind of Bloomian anxiety of influence way. Uh, Margaret stabs Carrie very deeply in the shoulder. We get a long description of the blood flowing from her again more blood more female excess uh but carrie ends up winning uh and she kills her mother telekinetically by slowing down her heart um and the slowing down happens because she tells her blood not to pump again more blood but i just i um I think that Margaret White is probably the most offensive character in the novel, both in terms of portrayal of gender and in terms of portrayal of religion, because while Carrie and uh, Sue and even uh, Christine, the kind of bad girl in the novel, get some levels of humanization, um, there's never any for Margaret. Do you guys agree with that? What did you think about her character? Uh, She's another caricature. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, she is the woman who turns into an animal when she gets emotional. Uh, she is, you know, the person who is functionally illiterate. Uh, every time she quotes the Bible, she gets it wrong. Uh, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I, I just think, I, I can't remember where I've been talking about this recently. I, I think on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, to the extent that an author can summon some Augustinian sense that every kind of evil is a distortion of something good. The character becomes more interesting. There's nothing good about Margaret White. No. I did wonder, reading reading it, I might be reading too much into <laughs> this book, but I wonder how much we're supposed to see her like self-blame as a rape victim playing into like her pre-existing negative attitudes towards sexuality and this kind of like cycle of reinforcement um because in her account of carrie's conception like that's definitely a rape story um and yeah and and both characters who get raped in this novel like it Mm -hmm. which i found horrifying yeah Yeah. just completely horrific yeah which is part of her her self-shaming with that too and you know side note i also have to wonder if she killed her husband because it's this freak accident with this girder falling where it shouldn't have and there's telekinesis running in the family it's right after he rapes her i mean maybe it didn't skip her she's not telekinetic though like we get that pretty pretty (laughs) verified well it skips a generation but also over and over we get told how strong her upper arms are Mm. Um, because she works at the cleaners or whatever, and also she hates her sexist boss. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought maybe she killed uh, the dad, too, but we should probably, yeah. we should probably keep, uh, <laughs> keep moving. Yeah. So, um, Nathan, can you tell us about some of the other characters in the novel? Uh, we get 
pictures of the only pictures we get of other people in the high school are these two couples that uh, are fairly obvious foils for one another uh, Sue and Tommy and Christine and Billy can you talk to us about them and what do they have to say about um, the possibility of uh, redemption atonement forgiveness uh, perhaps a slightly more nuanced uh, vision of religion than we get from other places in the novel. Certainly, certainly. Uh, I'll start with Christine and Billy because they are uh, stereotypes. Again, uh, Christine is the lawyer's daughter uh, who's never actually suffered any consequences for being a bully and a tyrant in her high school because every time something comes up, her father threatens to sue the school uh, and you know make sure that they never work again. I mean, the stereotypical a uh, child of, of opulence uh, who, you know, never learns that there are consequences in the world. Uh, you know, the one time that she does is in the locker room incident. Uh, she is suspended from school. She is barred from the from the prom uh, or the, uh, the spring ball, I think they call it. And so uh, she enlists the help of the greasers, uh, the lower class people, the people who know how to fix an automobile and their leader, Billy, uh, so who she has, you know, this strange, but again, utterly stereotypical sexual fascination with, uh, because he's tanned and has muscles, uh, and he has and because under he's his... low class, she's like attracted to slumming with him. Yes, she is, uh, and so uh, she enlists him to humiliate and to destroy Carrie White, uh, and you know he does so by, you know, again luring the pigs to their doom and, you know, taking the blood from them. Uh, but then what's interesting is that, uh, and by the way, when I say interesting, I mean, just again, monstrous, uh, is that he insists that she pull the rope that deploys the buckets. Uh, and ultimately, you know, one of the buckets, you know, that's still, according to the police report, a quarter full, uh, strikes Tommy in the head, uh, and kills him. And of course it sets, carry off on her, you know, final murderous rampage. Um, and then we find out later that, uh, while the town is literally burning, uh, they go back to the roadhouse, they go to the room above the bar and they have this weird rape sex, uh, you know, in which, you know, she says, Oh, this is how you always wanted it. Wasn't it? And I'm thinking, Oh, wow. I, and again, I, you know, Maybe in 1974, this is what Stephen King thought feminism looked like. Uh, you know, I, I find it horrifying. It's deeply now, offensive. Deeply, yeah, deeply offensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, to turn the corner to Sue and Tommy, they are the closest thing you get in this novel, except for perhaps Carrie White herself, to complexity in characters. Uh, Tommy is someone who we discover has athletic prowess. He's good at baseball. Uh, and he's enough uh, an all-around athlete that he can play on other sports teams at the high school level. He's probably going places in the world. He gets good grades. Uh, and we discover that, uh, you know, when he hears his girlfriend Sue talk about the locker room incident, he is troubled by it. Uh, and when she uh, hatches a plan uh, to seek some kind of redemption, uh, he's willing to go along with it. The plan is that Tommy is to ask uh, carry to the prom and take her there and give her an evening of dignity, uh, which he does. And, you know, 
and I, I can't remember if it was Victoria Marie, but you narrated nicely this moment where uh, people are com- complimenting her dress. Uh, people are looking at her uh, as a human being uh, for all of three pages. Um, and, you know, to the extent that, you know, it doesn't get ruined by the stereotype characters for that moment, uh, you know, Tommy seems to give Carrie, uh, like I said, a moment of dignity. Now, Sue is even a layer of complexity beyond that because she forsakes her own prom uh, to go to it. So, I mean, there's something resembling sacrifice there. Uh, but then a lot of the excerpts of the novel, and this is a novel, uh, I, can't, I can't remember if we've already noted this, where you get a lot of uh, features of, of what I think of as epistolary novels. So you get police reports, you get excerpts from books that people wrote about the incident later, you get transcripts from you know investigators, things like this. And one of the excerpts that you get over and over is uh, Sue's memoir that she writes when she is older. Uh, about, you know, the Carrie incident. And, uh, you know, she is utterly self-justifying in this memoir. I mean, she says, we were just kids, we didn't know we were doing, so on and so forth. Uh, So, I mean, for my money, I mean, that actually adds a little bit of complexity to her because, you know, she could have been uh, the obvious foil to Christine and been the teenager with a conscience and with a soul, uh, but then as she gets older, she becomes more and more like Christine. So, uh, you know, the, the, this is going to be my uh, damning with faint praise moment. I think the character of Sue, uh, because she never really achieves her redemption, is probably one of the more interesting characters in this novel. I would agree. I think she's certainly the most human. Um, and she has... She's the only one who you know, kind of literally and figuratively gets out. Um, She and Tommy have this conversation um, in the car before their own sort of strange sex scene, though it is not nearly as rapey as uh, Billy and Christine's. Um, They have this conversation that uh, is very Bruce Springsteen. It's very like, we don't want to become our parents. Um, Let's get out of this one horse town and make something of ourselves. Um, and and that gives them a dimension that I think Christine and Billy don't really have. Uh, but you're right that she doesn't entirely um, achieve that redemption, even though she and Carrie bond um, quite strongly. I, their minds meld telekinetically near the end of the novel, so Sue gets some of that roundness, too. And it's a super weird plan for redemption, though, also to get her boyfriend to, to take Carrie to the prom and not go herself. That's just a, like a plot device more than an actual something, something I, I don't know, to it's, do. It's her using the only currency that she has. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in this very insular world, when the prom is your moment of ascendance, to give that up for someone who is an outcast, I mean, it's 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 not nothing. I'll put it that way. It, it maybe it's not uh, entirely satisfying, but I'd say it's not nothing. Yeah, I would. It, it I is would interesting agree. To, it is interesting to have uh, the man being used as this token of exchange between the the female characters. <laughs> yeah, I I liked um, that a little bit. I liked that Tommy was this sort of 
you know, he's a, he's a trophy boyfriend a little bit. He's uh, he's fine, but he's simple. Uh, a good a good person, but he just sort of goes along with this plan. Um, and the two women who exchange him are certainly more developed than he is, which was um, an an interesting. Uh, change in a trope even though as we've said king isn't great at at developing women either um so we're over an hour right now i think maybe we uh should wrap up our discussion of the novel itself uh is there anything else you guys want to add before we move on to our uh recommendations passing on section nope uh, the only thing I would add is that the the vision of death in this novel is uh, definitely continuing with that you know very strong separation between body and spirit that we've seen all the way through the novel. So in that respect, uh, Margaret turns out to have been right because uh, it's almost irrelevant that Carrie's body perishes. Uh, the image that King dwells on is her psychic self going down into a a spiritual darkness and a light disappearing at the end of that darkness. So, I mean, there's almost no focus on the demise of her body. It's it's all disembodied. That's true. It is. Interesting, yeah. And I want to say, Nathan, you very rightly pointed out the paratextual structure of the novel, all these other um, police reports and newspapers and Sue's memoir, distance us from uh, Carrie's narrative and keep us separate from her even as we're literally uh, inside her head at some points and the novel I think it's important to note ends with one last paratextual structure it's a letter that a woman is writing to her sister and the uh, sort of through line of the letter is she's talking about her little daughter and the baby uh, is telekinetic like grandma so we end with this cycle of of mothers and daughters uh and power that seems to tell us even though carrie is gone um the the potential for female upheaval remains yeah oh man i'd I'd actually forgotten Mm. that victoria you you returned that memory to me that uh in this novel all those inbred fundamentalists and southerners are the ones who get superpowers (laughs) <laughs> oh, in the 2013 adaptation, actually, Sue at the end stays pregnant, so that's a little bit of a like nod to that cycle of, of female power, maybe, because Carrie, be- right before she dies, says, congratulations, it's a girl, basically, in a kind of weird moment, and <laughs> so we know that wow. baby's going to be a girl. <laughs> wow, I really want to see this movie now. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks so much uh, for talking to me about this novel. Uh, Let's wrap things up and give our listeners recommendations. Nathan, you go first. I'm going to cheat a little bit and talk about a book uh, whose author I interviewed for Christian Humanist Profiles, but which I still think is just a really, really good book to read, and that is A Person as a Lifetime by philosopher Stephanie Semler. Um, This is an endeavor that... uh, frankly, I thought wasn't possible until Dr. Semler did it, uh, and that is, it is an Aristotelian feminist ethics. Uh, you know, her contention is that uh, in the right impulse uh, to discard the, you know, 4th century BC uh, misogyny 
of Athenian and, you know, broader Greek culture, uh, people have overlooked the power of Aristotelian structures of thought uh, to construct a more robust feminism. So uh, it was a really good book, uh, and I, I still recommend it, even though I interviewed Dr. Semler about a number of years ago. Thanks, Nathan. That sounds really interesting. Marie, what do you have for us? Okay, so I will recommend The Gildas Stories by Jewel Gomez, which is a 1991 black lesbian vampire novel. Uh, it gained a little bit of a cult following, but it's not super well known. Um, anyway, I sort of think it's an interesting counterpoint to Carrie in that it deals with community, the construction of chosen family among those who might be outcast or ostracized for multiple reasons. It's also less... Um, less white, which is, you know, another, they're called whites uh, in this novel for reason. Yeah. Um, and blood has a very different significance here. So blood is life and the exchange of blood is this means of intimate connection between women and of community creation. So um, just looking at um, these supernatural horror genre novels, it's uh, kind of in a different place than Carrie, but some interesting connections. Uh, what about you, Victoria? Uh, I am also going to recommend uh, a film that I think does uh, horror menstruation as metaphor better than Carrie. I'm going to recommend a 2000 cult favorite horror film out of Canada called Ginger Snaps, uh, which is uh, these two sisters, one of whom is named Ginger, uh, they sort of sneak out at night in ways that they shouldn't, and uh, one of them, upon getting her period, also realizes that she's changing in a different way, and she becomes a werewolf. And uh, so that's a, a metaphor for, for bodily change. Um, it's super campy and dark, uh, very sardonic. Um, one of those things that kind of bombed when it was initially released, but became a cult favorite uh, because teenagers liked how kind of dark and sour it was. Uh, so that's my first recommendation, the 2000 film Ginger Snaps. I'm also going to recommend... Uh, a recent book called My Little Red Book, which is an anthology of women's uh, first menstruation stories. Um, I first read it when researching the menstruation chapter of my dissertation uh, years ago. It's really lovely. Um, there are sort of negative fear stories like the ones we talked about, um, but also very lovely, positive um, you know, welcome into womanhood stories as well. Um, all the proceeds of the book go to uh, charities that help women in uh, developing countries afford uh, sanitary products so that they don't have to miss school, um, as that is something that happens in a lot of countries. Girls uh, forfeit their right to education when they're on their period because they don't have uh, proper products. I would recommend if you have a young girl in your life, um, those stories are a good thing to share with her because it talks about kind of all the different ways we can experience uh, menstruation. And that's my little red book. As always, we will uh, link to all of our recommendations in the show notes. And I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you all for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at 
christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's shared Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. You can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Marie and Nathan, I'm Victoria. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss Song of Songs in the Bible. Uh, And until next time, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.